seated. As you know, this Friday is November the 11th. It's Veterans Day. And it is a day that our country sets aside as an opportunity for us to be able to bestow honor and respect upon those who have uh, served and sacrificed and fought to, in order to defend our country and the freedoms and preserve the freedoms that we enjoy in our country today. And uh, because that is this coming Friday, I wanted as a church right now for us to take just an opportunity to be able to recognize those who are part of our church family. If you are here this morning and have served in the, any branch of the United States military at some point in the past, would you please stand up and allow us to be able to recognize you and thank you for your service this morning. Right where you are, please stand. Thank you so very much. Having served in the United States Navy myself, I know what it's like. I, I know that every sailor, every airman, every soldier, every Marine, we were duty bound to serve and to be able to defend our country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I was even thinking about that this week. And when I went through boot camp in the United States Navy, one of the things that they required us to do was to learn our 11 general orders. That's how many we had. And the 11th general order actually was this. It says to be especially watchful at night and during the time for challenging, to challenge all persons on or near my post and allow no one to pass without proper authority. And I began to consider that, especially as it pertained to, 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 to security and, and to protection. Because, you know, a lot of what, what would take place, the responsibility that was ingrained and, and impressed upon me at that time was that while others slept, my responsibility was to make sure that they were protected and that they were safe. And really, that's what our military does. In many cases for us, while we sleep and while we live in security in this country, there are those, men and women, who are fighting for that freedom and protecting us and keeping us secure in other places along, all over the other side of the world and some places right in our own backyard. I thought about that a little bit this week as I prepared for this morning's sermon because the first passage that we're going to look at this morning really deals with the issue of security. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you did, would you please take them and turn to Psalm 125. Psalm 125. As you know, if you've been with us, we've been on a journey through the Psalms of the Ascent in the book of Psalms, and that's 15 Psalms that have been assembled together right there in the fifth book of the Psalms. And these 15, they were written at various times under various circumstances by various authors, and yet someone came along later and compiled them together in what we know as the Psalms of the Ascent. And ultimately, this was a small little mini-hymnal of songs that were put together. And I believe that they were sung by, by, by journeyers, by travelers who were making their way up the three times a year that they would journey from all over Palestine to Jerusalem, to the, to the mountain of God in order to celebrate the feast, the feast of Passover, the feast of Pentecost, the feast of Tabernacles. And as they would go there, I believe they would sing these songs and sing them together. And, and, and like most songs, like even the songs we heard sung for us this morning, some of the songs we sing today, they're songs that come from the heart. They're songs that tap into our emotions. They tap into our, our feelings that naturally bubble up depending on when we look around at our circumstances or when we go through and experience certain things in our lives. There's certain emotions that kind of bubble up within us. But I want you to know these songs are not just emotional songs. Rather, they are songs that are laced with objective truth. They are 
They are theological convictions that, that are there, that are rooted firmly in the fact that, that, that we have a faith in God who sits enthroned above the heavens and who sees and knows and, and hears everything that is going on in our lives. And this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at the next two in this mini-hymnal of the Songs of the Ascent. I want us to look at Psalm 125 and 126. Let's hear the word of the Lord this morning. The Lord, the strength of His people, a song of ascents. Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forever. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hands to do iniquity. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. As for such as turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord shall lead them away with the workers of iniquity. Peace be upon Israel. Psalm 126, a joyful return to Zion, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. and We are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for that it shines a light into our own souls and shows us who we are, but then also shines a light upon yourself to show us and point us the way that we ought to go and the hope that we have in you. I pray that this morning that your word would encourage our hearts and strengthen us and empower us to live lives that are obedient and pleasing unto you. This I pray in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the security is a, is a major issue for us. It's, it's an issue that we not naturally often think about when we start talking about the military and, and, and military forces. Uh, we, talked about, we talk about security, securing our borders. We talk about uh, security guards. We talk about home security systems. We talk about Internet security. We talk about the security that we get when we, are, when we have enough money in the bank or we have enough insurance to cover any catastrophe that comes our way. Security is typically always an important issue to us from a number of different perspectives. However, as Walt Kaiser has written, regardless of how secure many of us feel, there come to all of us times when we are suddenly left with a real or imagined sense of insecurity. He reasons that when the strong suddenly become weak, when the trusted suddenly become untrustworthy, when the healthy suddenly become ill either in body or in mind, the issue of security then looms high on our lists of priorities. What we come to recognize is, is that for all of us, for many and varied reasons, we often feel insecure. And that's really the subject matter that the psalmist takes up here in Psalm 125. He writes what he does to encourage the upright in heart, those who have placed their trust in God. 
The psalmist obviously recognizes that even though the believer is a believer, though his faith is in Christ, he nevertheless can be one who struggles with bouts of insecurity, which is why he begins the psalm this way. He says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. I mentioned to my Wednesday night Bible study group that came on Wednesday night, I mentioned to them that this, these first two verses are really the, the two main things that you get out of there. There's two similes that are there. Two things that are compared or, or, or brought together. The first one is, is what he says there. It, it, it's, it's, it's that those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Mount Zion was, was the bedrock that served as the original fortress for the city of Jerusalem. And therefore, when the psalmist says that believers are like that bedrock mountain, what he is saying is that we are secure. We are, we are immovable. We are unshakable. We are firmly fixed. Now, quite frankly, all that sounds great when you start talking about it. Man, it sounds good to say we're secure and firmly fixed and unshakable. But that information in and of itself probably doesn't provide us with a lot of comfort. I mean, depending on what we're going through, it almost sounds like somebody who comes up and pats you on the back and says, man, don't worry about things. It's all good. Everything's going to work out just fine, and it's all going to be fine. Don't worry about things. It's all right. Now, if you can make yourself not punch that person after they say that, you might actually start beginning to think, how do you know everything's going to be okay? How do you know everything's going to be all right? Upon what basis are you basing your statements to me? That really is the question, isn't it? Where does our assurance and security lie? How can we know that we are secure? I mean, after all, we can only be as confident and assured of our secure state as we are confident and assured of what, or in this case, who, guarantees our security. And that's really the point that the, that the psalmist addressed in the second simile in these verses, because there he says this, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forever. See, here's where we find the key. What we find is that our security is not based upon our ingenuity. It's not based upon our strength. It's not based upon our abilities or our perseverance, but it's based upon God persevering with us and his protection of us. You see, the city of Jerusalem was sort of nestled down into this sort of cradle of, of mountain ranges that surrounded it. And there were other mountaintops that you see from the city of Jerusalem. And these mountains provided a very natural way of protecting the city from invading armies. So the psalmist is saying that God, like those mountain ranges, surrounds his people. And in, and in doing so, he is the source of their security. He is the source of strength and protection for those who trust in him. Now, if you're a child of God this morning, I have, if you by faith trusted in Christ, I've got good news for you. That is your promise, according to scriptures. God surrounds you with his security. The unfortunate thing, however, for most of us is that our natural tendencies and our natural inclinations is not to 
trust in God and trust in Him, but rather to trust in our own abilities. Many times we trust in our bank accounts. We trust in our retirement accounts. We trust in our insurance policies. We trust in our own weaponry. We trust in our, in our intellectual prowess. We trust in our skills that we have acquired along the way. Some of us even trust in our own looks to be the very thing of which our security is tied to. And the list could go on and on and on. But the psalmist tells us that our confident security does not rest in any of those things. Rather, our confident security rests in the Lord who surrounds us. And, and in surrounding His people, we learn something else. God is the one who provides us with protection. He is the fortress that the Scriptures tell us that we run into and we're safe. Yet, here's what we also know. Sometimes bad things happen. Sometimes difficult, terrible circumstances, as we just heard from our sister this morning, come into our lives and, 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 and rattle us. Sometimes we understand that wicked people gain the upper hand. Sometimes opposition and persecution occur, just as we discussed last week. Many times we wake up and realize we're no longer on the home team. So what are we to make of that? If God surrounds and protects us, but bad things still happen to us, how do we make sense of it? Well, I want you to notice that the psalmist who writes this psalm as a, as a wonderful breath of fresh air to encourage us also acknowledges the fact that wickedness does exist. He lets us know that he's a realist at the same time. Notice what he describes in verse 3. He describes the scepter of wickedness there. And that refers really to the authority and the power of those whom in the context of this psalm had invaded Jerusalem, and they had set up their rule there. In fact, what we know of Israel's history is that time and time again, invading armies had, had come in and they had marched into Jerusalem and they had set up their ruling authority there. If you consider that, you may think to yourself, but I thought you said we were as secure as Mount Zion. I thought you said we were as secure as Jerusalem. God surrounds us like those mountains surrounded the city. But now you're telling me that Jerusalem was invaded again and again and again. That doesn't sound very secure to me, preacher. But I want you to notice what the psalmist says. Look closely. Verse 3, he says, For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous reach out their hand to iniquity. The security that the psalmist speaks about here does not negate the fact that bad things happen and that wicked people do all that they can to oppress the righteous. Nevertheless, we are assured that such oppression and persecution will not be allowed to go on forever. God's people will not be subjected to the authority of wicked, unjust rulers permanently. As Walt Kaiser has stated, the scepter of wickedness will not come to rest on the inheritance of those who trust in the Lord. No matter how great the forces of evil may grow, the wicked will never be a match for God. You see, what the psalmist tells us is that though we are absolutely secure in the Lord, that doesn't mean that we're not going to see bad times. It doesn't mean that, that there won't appear to be times when the wicked have control over everything. But what we must remember is that our circumstances, what we can see with our own eyes, can and often do deceive us. We must remember that God is ultimately in control and that He will ultimately be victorious over His enemies. 
He will do good and he will help those who belong to him, those who the psalmist says are upright in their hearts. And this is really how the psalmist concludes this psalm. He, he does so with a prayer that the Lord would continue to do good to those who are his and that he would deal justly with those who turn aside to crooked ways. You know, when I was studying the sermon this week, I kept coming across different writers who kept referring to uh, doing a parallel between Psalm 125 and what takes place in, in 2 Kings chapter 6. In 2 Kings 6, there's this battle that's beginning to take place. It's the Syrian uh, ruler who has amassed a great army, and he's going to attack the king of Israel. And, and over and over again, he's thwarted, and he, fairly, he realizes that something's going on. And, and so people begin to point and say, it's Elisha. It's during the time of the prophet Elisha. And he says, that's the guy who's messing everything up for you. So he finds out where Elisha is, and Elisha's there with his, his servant guy. And, and so they're there, and, and, and so the, the Syrian king just amasses this great number of army and chariots and horses. And he goes to go on attack against the prophet Elisha. And Elisha's servant is just scared out of his mind. As a matter of fact, you get there, there's a point where one early one morning the servant of Elisha goes out and he looks and what he sees is all these Syrian army and chariots and horses. And he says to him, he comes back in, he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Let me bring that into my more modern vernacular. That's like, man, we are in a mess. Have you seen the number of folk quite out there that's fixing to come after us? There's so many of them. And Elisha looks at him and he says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he says, he began to pray that God would give his servant the ability to see exactly what was taking place that he had not been able to see before. And the Lord answered his prayer. And then we read, Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. In other words, God's heavenly army surrounded Elisha, protecting him and helping him. And that's why he could look at his servant and say, Do not fear. Relax. God is in control and He is for us and He will never be against us. And that's why I believe that is such a wonderful illustration of what we find in the 125th Psalm. And so let me show you this this morning. The first point on your outline is this, and I believe it's just a, a good summary of what we've learned in the 125th Psalm is this. The confident security of those who trust in the Lord rests in the fact that He surrounds, protects, and helps us. Brothers and sisters, that's a promise that you and I must cling tightly to. We must not be insecure and fearful. We are like Mount Zion. We are immovable. We are unshakable. We are solid and secure. Why? Because of us? Because of our abilities? Because of our strength? Absolutely not. It's just as what David writes in Psalm 20 verse 7. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 34, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. 
It's exactly what the writer of the 121st Psalm asked when he started out. He says, from whence cometh my help? And then he answers his own question and says, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Friend, the confident security of those who trust in the Lord rests in the fact that he surrounds and he protects and he helps us. And it is that reality and it is that confident assurance that then launches us into Psalm 126. I love how Psalm 126 begins. He starts it this way. He says, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Let me translate that for you too. Man, that was so good what God did to us. I had to pitch myself to make sure that I wasn't imagining it. It was just that good. I couldn't believe what was happening. Most scholars believe that this psalm, the setting of it, is when the captives were released from their captivity. After 70 years, they would have been taken into Babylonian captivity. But Cyrus the Great had come along, the Persian leader, and he defeated Babylon. And as a result of that, he had turned loose all of the Jews who had been held captive for those previous seven decades. And they were allowed to go back home to their, to their homeland, many of whom had never seen it firsthand. They had only been told what they were going to see from their parents and their grandparents before them. And But as they made their way and ascended up that mountain for the first time as free men, men and free women, they were able to walk down those streets that they had been told about and see the sights for themselves. And what he says here is that as they did that, their heart just brimmed over. They couldn't contain the joy of being finally free and back in their homeland. Suddenly laughter just began to explode from their lips and so were songs and shouts and testimony. As a matter of fact, it tells us that there were so many nations who knew what had happened to Jerusalem that they had their own designs. They said, wow, They've been in captivity for 70 years, but God has done great things for them by bringing them back home. And the people of Israel say, you're right. He has done great things for us. We are a blessed people. We are glad of the things that he has done. Quite frankly, when I read this, as I've been reading it all week, there's never a moment that a smile doesn't break across my face. It's just, it's just one of those psalms that's just like so overwhelmingly joyful that you can't help but get involved in it. The closest thing that I can speak about to myself a little bit was that I mentioned that I was in the Navy earlier. 25 years ago this month, I was in Charleston, South Carolina, finishing up my last bit. I had been in four and a half years. And they issued me my discharge papers. Honorably, by the way. <laughs> I, remember, I remember driving off the Naval base there in Charleston, South Carolina for the last time and heading my car and pointing it toward Gainesville, Georgia. And I remember just being elated. It wasn't that I'd, I enjoyed every minute that I spent. Well, maybe that's a strong word. I, I would not take anything for the amount of time that I spent serving my country in the United States Navy, but I was also thrilled to be going home. It was exciting. The only other time that I can, that I can remember being quite that excited was about a year and a half ago, Louisville, Kentucky, when I walked across the stage and I grabbed the president of my seminary's hand for the very last time, getting the last degree that I will ever attempt to try to earn. And knowing that I would never have to go and sit in a class and take a test again. That was exciting. Now, I don't mean to compare my experiences to any things that was going on with those, with those Jews that had been in, in captivity. Nevertheless, I do know what it is like to, to, to feel as if that which you are in is some, a long tunnel that you don't think you're ever going to get out of. You wonder, is it ever going to come to an end? Am I ever going to have an opportunity to do something different with my life? 
I know what it's like to finally reach that point, and it's like the sun breaks open and just shines on you, and the birds start singing, and you get a, a breath of fresh air that blows across your face. That's the sense that I get from this psalm in Psalm 126. That's the sense that I get from when he starts talking about the laughter and the singing and the joy and the testimony that's a part of what his life is like. And what I want you to know is he didn't, he didn't rejoice in his own good. Cyrus is not even mentioned in this passage. Nevertheless, he does know who is ultimately in charge. It was the God who is the sovereign God of heaven who brought him out, who surrounded him, who protected him, who helped him, and yes, even delivered him and set him free. You see, many of these former captives, like I said, they'd never seen things with their own eyes. They'd never known things of their own way, but here they were back in their homeland. And I think that issues forth in a prayer. Notice what happens next. The psalmist prays, Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south or as the Negev. The Negev was the southern part of, of the land, and it was where it was very arid and dry. It was a desert land. There were a lot of real old dried up riverbeds and gulches that were there. And it, and it stayed that way until the rains came. But when the rains came, those old dried riverbeds would fill up with water. Torrents of water would come flooding through there. And almost overnight, that arid desert land could be transformed into what would look like a flower garden. And this is what the psalmist prays for. He says, Lord, restore our fortunes. Let us experience those good times again. And be quite frank about it. Certainly, being delivered from captivity to freedom, well, that was akin to watching gullies fill up with water and flowers bursting forth in the desert. But then there's this final metaphor that the psalmist writes about. He says, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I love the way that Eugene Peterson has paraphrased this passage. He says this, And now, God, do it again. Bring rains to our drought-stricken lives so those who planted their crops in despair will shout hurrahs at the harvest. So those who went off with heavy hearts will come home laughing with armloads of blessings. You know what that tells us? It tells us that sometimes God does amazing things in our lives seemingly overnight. There's sometimes, and I don't doubt that some of you in this room could testify, that before the prayer even left your lips and the amen was sounded, God had already accomplished for you what you've been praying about. That He just showed up and turned, He reversed your fortunes literally overnight. It doesn't always work that way, does it? The fact of the matter is, oftentimes our prayer life resembles what Spurgeon refers to as going and shaking the tree. Still no fruit falls. But you keep shaking. And you keep praying. What do we do at that point? What do we do when it, we keep shaking the tree but no fruit falls? Do we dismiss God? Do we just walk away from the church? Do we walk away from God's people? Do we say, I've had enough of it, it's not true? God obviously doesn't care about me. When, when He doesn't answer us immediately or He doesn't answer us in the way that we would like for Him to answer us, do we just decide that God no longer loves us or cares about us? No, as, as Eugene Peterson goes on to write, he says, what, what, what Psalm 126 reveals 
is that the one who wrote it and those who sang it were no strangers to the dark side of things. They carried the painful memory of the exile in their bones and the scars of their oppression on their backs. Consequently, what we learn is that as believers, Christ, believers who, who love Him and have committed our lives to Christ, laughter does not exclude weeping. Christian joy does not it get, provide us an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the genuine joy that is there for the redeemed. You see, genuine joy rests in being able to recognize how God has worked in our lives and blessed us in spectacular ways in the past, but it is also a confident assurance that God will hear our prayers and answer us in His time and according to His will in the future. And for the moment, we may sow in tears. And we may go forth weeping. But he has promised us that sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That leads me to the next point on your outline this morning, and it's this. The genuine joy of God's people rests in the fact that the Lord has done great things for us by setting us free, restoring our fortunes, and answering our prayers, not only in the past, but in the future as well. So here we have these two psalms. One reminds us of the security that we have and where it lies, and the other one reminds us of the genuine joy that is ours and the source of that joy. And here's the question that begs to be asked then. Do you have that security and that joy in your life? I want you to know they go together. They come as a package deal because they emanate from the same place. They both come from God and from His hand. And what we learn from these psalms and then what's revealed to us even fuller later in Scripture is this, is that confident security and genuine joy is the inheritance of those who have by faith trusted in the grace and mercy extended to them through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross, the Lord Jesus died to offer pardon to all of those who will by faith receive His pardon. There he suffered his punishment, and the punishment that was due to us was not his that he had earned upon himself, but it was his because he took our shame upon himself. And he suffered the death that you and I deserve. He paid the price that we could never pay. By his death, he satisfied the wrath of God against sin. But I want you to know the good news doesn't just stop there. It wasn't just that Jesus died, it's that He rose again on the third day. And He is now alive and He is seated at the right hand of the Father and He's interceding, He is praying and He is interceding with the Father for you and me. And what that tells us is simply that this, the grave could not hold Him and death could not defeat Him. And the Bible tells us that all who will by faith receive His offer of forgiveness and make Him Lord of their lives, will become children of God. And they will never have to fear death. They will never have to fear hell or the grave. They will never have to worry that someone stronger than Him can come and rip them out of His hands, and they will never have anything that can be able to separate them from the love of God. Does that mean that every day is going to be sunny? Does it mean there's never going to be a dark cloud that comes into our life? Does it mean there's never going to be days of trouble and difficulty? Absolutely not. But friend, understand this. What it does mean is that as a child of God, if Christ is your Savior, then because of what He has done for you, 
you are completely secure regardless of what comes your way. And you have every reason to rejoice because our Lord is in complete control. And that leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. When insecurity, fear, and sadness threaten our confidence and joy, we who trust in the Lord must remember that He is strong, He is righteous, and He's always working things out for our good and for His glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.